Oh, that's a great hymn to begin a study on Revelation, don't you think? Well, chapter 6 is where we find ourselves. Maybe you brought your chapter outline with you tonight. And if you did, you can see that we are now in the actual study of the tribulation from chapter 6 through to chapter 19. It culminates with Christ's coming back to earth. I believe that um, we have pretty much the seven years uh, laid out for us in chapter 6. The Lord Jesus is pictured as a lamb that was slain. And he came and took a seven sealed book from the hand of the father. And this book, as he breaks the seals and opens each section, it's now I cannot say that each seal equals one year, seven seals, seven years. I can't say that because I don't know. But it seems that um, the seven seals, the seven seal book seems to cover the whole seven years of the tribulation. And in um, uh, chapter uh, six, we have um, six of those seven seals. And the seventh, we're going to deal with that as we get into chapter seven, God willing, next week. So once again, let's just please ask the Lord to bless our study. Let's close our eyes, please, and bow our heads. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have a book of Revelation. And the Bible just wouldn't be complete without it. It's sure an exciting book, scary book, and it can be difficult to understand. Please have the Holy Spirit open the eyes of our understanding. Please have the Holy Spirit teach us the truth and apply the truth to our hearts and help us, Lord. If indeed Jesus is coming very soon, then that makes us the last generation on earth before the tribulation begins. And yet there's still much work that needs to happen. The gospel needs to go out. Even here in this city, so many people, hundreds of thousands, have never heard a clear presentation of the gospel. Dear precious Heavenly Father, please give us that joy, that opportunity, to herald the great good news throughout this city and, yea, around the world through our missionaries. And so now, Lord, please, we ask for a special anointing on our hearts and minds. Help us to understand. We pray for those that are watching online that you would please comfort and bless and give to them a, a goodly blessing tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, John now sees Jesus, the Lamb, open the first seal. Verse 1, and I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, so here's the first seal, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts, saying, come and see. And so immediately this beast, this first beast with a voice like thunder, says, Come on and see. And uh, perhaps John was now looking over the precipice of heaven down into earth. Because if you'll remember chapter 4, uh, verse 1, he hears this trumpet saying, Come up, come up here, and uh, come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And so we understand from that that uh, John is up in heaven. And uh, quite possibly looking down here and seeing what's happening on earth. And verse two, I saw and behold a white horse and he that sat on him had a, a bow and a crown was given unto him and he went forth conquering and to conquer. And so we have a rider on a horse. This is not Jesus Christ. This is not Jesus. He comes later in chapter 19 and verse 11 on a white horse. This rider is imitating Jesus Christ. This is, I, I put forth to you tonight is the Antichrist. Notice once again in verse two, that he, uh, it says a crown was given unto him. Uh, he had a bow. He's sitting on a horse, a white horse. And so he has this, this bow, a weapon, but there's no arrows mentioned here. 
And uh, some commentators suggest that it means he has power to uh, conquer uh, without using force, without using the arrows. Now, uh, whether this is true or not, we don't know. But uh, he does go forth. This rider on the white, for- the white horse goes forth conquering and to conquer. The Antichrist, we suggest to you, is a man of diplomacy who's able to achieve his ends, his political ends, through what we'll call salesmanship. Uh, the crown that he's been given is proof of his success. The Antichrist will be a super politician with magnetic charm. He will uh, sway the world with both charm and threats somehow. And so um, we have the beginning of the tribulation. This is the first phase of the Antichrist. Now, if you keep your finger there, chapter six, and just take a look, please, at chapter 13. Now, in chapter, chapter 13 is located on your chapter outline page, and it's tucked there um, in the red brackets, kind of in the middle, from chapter 12 to chapter 15, verse 4. This is parenthetical. So this section, chapter 12, right through to chapter 15, verse 4, is not chronological. It's parenthetical. And God is giving us a lot of the details. But one of the details is about the Antichrist. In chapter 13, verse 1, we have the first phase of the Antichrist. I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns upon his horn, uh, horns, ten crowns, and upon his heads, his heads, the name of blasphemy. Who knows? Maybe that'll have something to do with the 666. We don't know. But in this chapter, he receives his death blow and dies and then comes back to life after. And that we would call the second phase of the uh, Antichrist. So the first phase of the Antichrist mentioned there in chapter 13, and we will get to it, God willing. But we're back to chapter six and we have the rise of the Antichrist. And he's definitely on the, uh, the rise at the beginning of the tribulation time um the world today seems to be racing at a breakneck speed toward uh what's going to end up as a one world government the bible predicts it the bible speaks of a one world currency if you have a one world government you're going to need a one world currency and these things of course will be accepted they'll make a lot of sense Back in the 70s, I remember a lot of the Christians saying that the credit card was the mark of the beast. And then came the barcodes and, oh no, that is the mark of the beast. And then they talked about the chip implants in the back of the hand and the head. And uh, all the tremendous amount of detail they went into with these things, calling that the mark of the beast and so on. So there's a lot of speculation out on that kind of stuff. My personal take is that the mark of the beast is a visible sign, a visible mark that shows public allegiance to the Antichrist. To me, that best fits the context. Although, um, you know, people are getting chipped. That is very true. Will people, everyone get chipped in the tribulation? We don't know. We don't know. Uh, We're moving toward a cashless society, it seems. And uh, these things make sense not having cash carrying uh, in your in your pocket or purse, but having a, a little card makes a lot of sense because cash is taken, it's gone. At least the card you can call up, get it stopped, and you can get, you know, reimbursed maybe. Uh, but uh, with cash, it's gone. It seems that the world is moving in this direction toward a cashless one, one currency. Uh, interesting that terrorism... Um, I always used to wonder how in the world, how in the world will they ever pull a one world religion? Because we're talking about a one world government, one world currency, a one world religion. And I've heard a lot of speculation. I've read books and heard sermons and things. And some preachers seem to think that all the world is going to become Roman Catholic. It's not. It's not going to become any one actual technical religion in themselves. They'll get to keep their individuality. But when 9-11 happened, 
and the planes were used as dive bombers into those targets, and thousands of people died. The whole world changed at 9-11, you know that. The whole world has changed, and it suddenly occurred to me, that's probably what they'll do. They'll use fear, terrorism. You can keep your religion, just sign on the dotted line that you have nothing to do with terrorism. And I think that terrorism is really being used today to galvanize a one-world government. It's coming. Now, again, we're not living in the tribulation. We don't know who the Antichrist is. We don't know where this one-world government will have its headquarters and so on. We don't know these things. We're just looking ahead and dimly and darkly at that too. But the things that we see are kind of scary. In the world today is a group called the United Nations. Now, the United Nations, the forerunner, I should say, was called the League of Nations, and it came into being in World War I. During World War II, it was uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt who uh, coined the, the term United Nations. And right after the war, 1945, 50 countries met in, um, the representatives of 50 countries met in San Francisco, and they officially formed, apparently in June 26, 1945, the charter was signed for the United Nations. Now, they've been in existence since then. Um, the idea of them is that they're devoted to world peace and health, but it's humanistic, folks. God is left out of the picture. There's no room for God in the world today. And that's reflected in the United Nations. The supremacy of man is what they promote. And no doubt the Antichrist somehow is going to be involved with that. I can't see how we cannot be. But uh, the UN is uh, looking for a one world government. And I've read speeches made in the UN where they're looking for a man to head it up. So it seems that the greater percentage of the world is going to be in favor of the activities of the UN and will no doubt go along with the world leader. Understand something that when the Antichrist comes, the whole world is not going to fall in love with him. The whole world will not just automatically bow at his feet because we just read he goes forth conquering and to conquer. And that means there's going to be people who don't like him. And so the Antichrist is going to be loved and adored and despised and hated at the same time. And he will keep growing in power and authority and he will, he will take over. Now, another group to keep our eyes on is the European Union. And I know that they've been up and down and so on, but the Bible speaks of a reviving of the Roman Empire. And I think that's happening before our very eyes. I think it's coming to pass. It's certainly a current major player in world affairs, including peace treaties. Now, the Antichrist is going to come to the forefront after the rapture. People will know who this uh, worldwide leader is. Um, he is going to set up some kind of seven-year peace treaty with Israel. There actually have been peace treaties, many peace treaties proposed for Israel. Now, Israel kind of needs a peace treaty. If you look at it on the map, all of these Muslim-controlled countries all around it, and this tiny little speck, that's Israel. They're right in the middle. They've got all of these enemies. One of their major enemies is Iran. And Iran seems to be nuclear, just about nuclear-powered, it seems. Um, I know there's been a lot of uh, fighting, um, threats made, and so on. They seem, if they're not now nuclear-powered, they're pretty close. North Korea seems to be nuclear powered and they boast of having um, long range missiles that can uh, even reach the United States and uh, Canada would pick up the fallout over that. You know, if they sent uh, missiles, we, you know, we are in harm's way here in Canada, probably right here on the West Coast even. <laughs> hey, run for the hills, everyone. Not quite. Well, Israel is going to be given a seven-year peace treaty. Now, right now, there's a peace treaty offered to Israel, but it's not for seven years. 
Uh, however, amendments can be made to this peace treaty that's out there right now. Uh, the Trump government has put out a peace treaty for Israel. The Palestinians have just flatly refused it. But all that can change through negotiation. All that can change. And um, we've seen already through negotiation in the last three years of the Trump administration how he's reworked major deals with China and with Mexico and Canada. These are incredibly big deals. And so he's got the, what he calls the deal of the century. Um, maybe just a few more alterations, some negotiating, and before you know it, you might have the seven-year peace treaty right there. Well, does that mean Trump is the Antichrist? No, it doesn't. But he might be. You never know. You just, we just don't know. Of course, Russia is making uh, threatening gestures for a long time, but uh, particularly toward uh, Israel. And Russia has been helping out the enemies of Israel. We just don't have the time to look at Ezekiel 38 and 39 and look at how uh, uh, the bear of the north will try to attack Israel. But um, all that is around the beginning of the tribulation. God himself says he's going to destroy the armies of the bear of the north on the mountains of Israel. That's, that's good reading to, to read up on in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Perhaps right after the rapture, Russia will align itself with the Palestinians and attack Israel. We don't know. But some, something's going to happen. All in around the first bit there of the tribulation, the uh, peace plan will be rolled out. Maybe, it, maybe Russia will have to attack in order for the peace plan to be accepted. Again, we don't know. There's just things on the table we're pointing out. I suppose there have been a million ideas as to who the antichrist is and uh, we we've got we got our thoughts but we still don't know do we um we better move on here to verse three and when he jesus had opened the second seal i heard the second beast say come and see and there went out another horse that was red and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. And so here the Lord Jesus opens the second seal. Now as I suggested earlier. These seven seals. Seem to me. To cover the entire seven years. But I cannot say that one seal equals one year. Maybe the first seal will equal the first six months. Don't know. Don't know. We got no indication that I know of. But he opens the second seal and the second beast tells John, come and see. Again, take a look at what's happening on earth. The second rider is red and that's a picture of war. It's a picture of war. Notice the great sword that was given to this one. Now, um, we've, we've got a, a world that's preparing for war. Uh, the politicians are... Uh, biting their fingernails. They're all nervous. Uh, they know that um, war is an imminent thing. A world war I'm talking about. Because once you get uh, one nation attacking another, then you, you get the, uh, the other nations ganging up on either side. Um, same thing happened in the fir First World War. Same thing happened in Second World War. Same thing will happen in the Third World War. Will there really be a Third World War the answer is yes. There will be a third world war. For sure. This is going to happen uh, sometime early in the, um, uh, the tribulation. Within the first year, maybe two years. I can't see it being any longer than that. But um, somewhere in there, there will be a, a worldwide war after the Antichrist takes over. And if you look at verse 5. And when he had opened the third seal. I heard the third beast say, come and see. And I beheld and lo, a black horse. The first was white, then red. Now black, a black horse. And he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice. Uh, and I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, a measure of wheat for a penny and three measures of barley for a penny. And see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. Here the Lord Jesus opens the third seal of the seven seal book. 
And the third beast tells John, come and see on earth. The third rider is black, and that pictures famine upon the earth. Now, I want you to write down these verses and look them up later. Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 28. Write that down and look it up later. Jeremiah 4, verse 28. Also, Lamentations 4, verses 8 to 9. Because there in the Bible, black is pictured as famine. Famine. And so the third rider is black, picturing famine upon earth. And after war, famine follows. When you get a big war like that, famine always seems to follow. And war also pushes up inflation so that everything costs more. And uh, that also promotes famine as well. Now, the scales, this rider's got a set of scales. The scales refer to economy. A penny used to be, in Bible days, a man's wages for a day. You could check that out in Matthew 20. A man's wages for a day. And uh, what it bought was uh, three measures of barley. Now, barley was the cheapest of the cereal grains. It was a very gritty, kind of hard, and it was the cheapest. Um, three measures. Um, the, again, there's some discussion as to you know, the size of a measure, it could have been one liter or a pint, or the three could have been one. I, just different commentators, different authorities seem to say a few different things, but you, you kind of end up with the picture that a man works for the bread he can eat that day. So just enough to sustain life. You say, wow, what if he has a wife and children? What do they do? I don't know. I don't know. That's why there's going to be famine and death. And so there's going to be a lot of hard, hard, hard economic times coming to the world. After Antichrist comes and then war, a world war, and then famine sets in. What about elderly people that are not able to work? What's going to happen to them? What will happen to all of our social welfare programs that we have come to depend upon? What happens to our old age pensions? Everything, gone, gone, gone. A person will have to work a whole day to make enough money for food to that one day. Now, the rich people aren't that badly affected because they can still afford the, the wheat, which is a far better grain, and they can afford the oil and the wine. So they can afford that. Now, we get to verse 7. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, come and see. Um, verse 8, and I looked and behold a pale horse and his name that sat on him was death and hell followed with him and power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth. That's 25% to kill with sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. So the Lord Jesus opens this fourth seal. Boy, this is a, a horrible time to be alive on earth, isn't it? It's just wretched. These are the good old days. Huh? Never complain about how much rain we get out here on the West Coast ever again. Hmm? Never complain if we get a little bit of snow. Never complain at the price of gas at the pumps. Oh, look, it's a dollar fifty, a dollar sixty. Oh, people will be lucky to have gas. They'll be lucky to have a vehicle and have gas in these days of the tribulation. But this fourth seal is opened, and the fourth rider is pale like a corpse. He's pale like a corpse, and in what I think is less than two years, three years, less than two years maybe, 25% of the world's population will die. Now, right now, uh, there is seven and a half billion, seven and three quarter billion people. Well, you take off uh, a billion people that may be saved. 
So then, um, then you're left with um, six and a half billion. Tell you what, let's be generous and say there's a billion and a half or a billion and three quarters saved. Let's leave six billion on the earth when the tribulation starts. Well, at the beginning of the tribulation, there's going to be a, a bunch of people get saved. We'll, we'll talk about that. We'll get into that. But death is going to come and death is going to be real wholesale. Now, right now, um, we have about um, 150,000 people die every 24 hours. So every day, let's say 150,000 people die. That's about 55 million people a year. That's a lot. A lot of people die from various causes, including the coronavirus. If there's 6 billion and 25% of them are going to die. Well, let me see now. How many is that? Two, four, one, 1. 1.5. Is that right? 1.5 billion people. We're going to jump from right now, a death rate of about 50, 55 million to one and a half billion. And the death rate is, is going to be exponential here. There's something insane, uh, like one and a half million people dying every day. You know, we're talking 150,000 now. Multiply that by 10. The death rate is going to be phenomenal. The uh, funeral homes, what's going to happen? If, I mean, think of this thing through. If the death rate just went up by, you know, times 10. Where are they going to bury these people? They can't. They're going to have to cremate them. A lot will have to be cremated. I am sure they're going to make some mass graves like they did during the war and with bulldozers push the bodies in there and cover them all with earth. I'm sure they're you cannot leave dead bodies out in the open because it, you develop cholera and horrible diseases and that spreads death. You have to do something with the bodies. And so I'm sure they'll be cremated. They'll, they'll be buried with bulldozers. They'll be uh, uh, maybe buried at sea. All kinds of them, I'm sure, will be shipped out in huge containers and the containers just pushed off the boat, let them sink down. I'm sure that that's kind of thing's going to happen. When you get to this uh, amount of people dying that uh, a quarter of the people are going to die. It's, it's phenomenal. Death follows famine. Famine follows war and war is going to follow the entrance of the antichrist. Can you imagine one and a half or maybe 2 million people every day going off into eternity? How many are going to heaven? How many are going to hell? Probably the majority will end up in hell. Take a look, please, at Matthew 24. I want to remind you that Matthew 24, 25 are tribulational. They do not deal with the church age and the rapture. They deal with the tribulation. Matthew 24 Look at verse six and seven and ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet for nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. And look at verse eight. All these are the what beginning of sorrows. And so this is another reason why we think these things are going to characterize the, the early couple of years of the seven year tribulation. Now uh, we're going to press on. I think we can get all the way through this chapter. Um, so back to chapter six, and we're going to pick up in verse nine. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held the Lord Jesus now opens that fifth seal 
And immediately John sees an altar in heaven, an activity happening beneath it. You say, what was this altar? Well, according to Hebrews chapter eight and nine, the tabernacle on earth, the temple on earth was made after the pattern of the one in heaven. Now there was actually two altars. There was one for sacrifice out front, a large altar. The animals were sacrificed on that. That gave relationship to the, the people of Israel. And then there was another one inside the first holy place. And that one was the altar of incense and it was for giving of praise to God and prayer. And so the altar in heaven would have been that John saw would have been similar to the altar of incense, giving praise to God. And here the tribulational saints, we find them martyred and they're made to wait for a short time. Now think about this people that are alive today. Maybe you people, you know, at work or at school, Maybe your next door neighbors or some of your relatives here in town or around the world who are not saved and you've prayed for them and maybe you've invited them to church. Maybe you've given some gospel literature, gospel tract, a Bible study or a Bible. Perhaps they've uh, listened to the gospel being preached on radio or television or internet, but they've never received Jesus Christ as their savior. And then the trumpet sounds we're gone. The tribulation begins to unfold and they realize you're gone. You're gone. You know what I think we need in our homes is some kind of, I don't know, a tribulation kit. Something that we can put together and put on the wall of our home and with something that says, in case I disappear out of the earth, <laughs> break glass, you know, take out. There may be a Bible and gospel tract in there. Tell them how to get saved. But people today that, you know, some of them, I think are going to get saved in the tribulation and all of the doors we knock on. We keep our statistics up here. It's hidden by that TV screen. You can't see it, but we keep our statistics throughout the year on there. And there's thousands and thousands of doors we knock on and thousands and thousands more that we put gospel literature in their mailboxes. And some of these people here in our city, I think they're going to get saved in the tribulation. What's going to happen to them? Probably get martyred. Probably. What? Right here in Surrey? I know Surrey's, you know, I know Wally can sometimes be a little bit trouble, but come on now, would they really, people really get murdered? Yeah. Yeah. Because we're talking now a whole different world with a one world government. And maybe a madman in charge. And so in verse 9 here, we're told that people are going to be martyred. These are the tribulation saints that get people get saved after the rapture. And they're made to wait a, a short time. Um, hmm. Why were these people killed? In verse 9, it tells you why they were killed. They were killed for the word of God. That's the Bible. And they were killed for their testimony. That means I'm saved. I've asked Jesus into my heart. They were killed for the Bible and for their testimony. Why were the early Christians killed in the first couple, three centuries? They were killed for the word of God and for their testimony. Why was the apostle John banned to the Isle of Patmos? Chapter one, verse nine, he tells you for the word of God and for his testimony. Why were the Christians killed during the Roman inquisition during the, the middle ages because of the word of God and because of their testimony? Why were Christians killed in the Russian revolution because of the word of God and their testimony? Why were Christians killed by the Nazis in world war II because of the word of God and their testimony? Now, do you see a pattern here? It's going to continue right through into the tribulation. Why will these Christians be killed in the tribulation? They will be killed for the word of God and for the testimony. Please don't think that Canada as a nation loves Christians. Canada ceased to be a Christian nation decades ago. We got our, that our title as a Christian nation sponged off the books decades ago. We're not a Christian nation. 
We don't claim to be and we don't boast that we are. We have Christians within our nation. But I'll tell you something. The Christians within our nation are being despised and downtrodden. And laws are being changed all the time that make it harder and harder and harder for Christians to let their light shine. There was a day and age when you could take the Bible and go out on the street corner and start preaching the word of God without fear of reprisal. Not anymore. You go and do that, you can have the police come and tell you to move on. And if you say, no, I'm standing here for my rights and the people need to hear the word of God, they may just, you know, put the cuffs on you and throw you in the back of the squad car. And you say, they can't do that. Boy, they can. They can. The Christians' rights and freedoms? What's that? We, we are a laughingstock uh, across the nation, even in our judicial courts. Say, yeah, they use the Bible. You got to take an oath. Half the time, it's not even a Bible. And sure, they do it out of ceremony. And you put your hand on the Bible. I swear to tell the, the other way, to tell the truth, the whole truth, none but the truth. So help me God. And that's the last time you see the Bible. Where'd that Bible go? Never mind. Let's move on with the trial. Oh, but I, I want to quote something. No, no. Objection sustained. <laughs> You're out of there. The Bible has, has no authority. And neither do any Christians. That's the country we currently live in. We're just hanging in there by the skin of our teeth. By the grace of God, we've been given a little time to live for him and let our light shine. Boy, we better not blow it. What do you think? The most important thing you can read is your Bible. And the most important thing you can say is your testimony. They are so important that it's going to get Christians killed in the tribulation. That's how critical and important the Bible and your testimony are. You're not allowed to carry a Bible into, into work. Not allowed to carry a Bible into uh, school, but you can carry a copy of the Koran. You can carry a ceremonial dagger, but you can't carry a Bible. When I grew up, when I was a little boy growing up, they had the Ten Commandments on a wall. We used to say the Lord's Prayer. I was in public school. Things have changed. Look at verse 10. And they cried. These are the, the martyrs. They cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? So they were violently uh, mistreated and they were unjustly put to death. And I'm sure they would have been shot. They would have been bludgeoned. They would have been pushed off of tall buildings. They would have had their throats slit. I'm sure that there would have been dozens of ways in which they were killed, killed, killed. And there's a lot of them that were killed. Now, Psalm 116, verse 15 says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. These martyred saints are asking the Lord to do something, to do what's right. They're asking for divine justice because they know they've been put to death unjustly. Luke chapter 18 says, and shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them. I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Look at verse 11. And white robes were given unto every one of them. And it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were, should be fulfilled. Again, another reason why we think that, that uh, we're still part way through, maybe halfway through the tribulation at this point, these precious souls are the first to be killed all within the, the first two, three years I can't see it being more than four years of the tribulation. They're given white robes that refers to the robes of righteousness. They're asked to wait a short time, a short season until the other tribulational martyrs join them. 
Then they'll be given resurrection bodies at the end of the tribulation. And um, in chapter 20 of Revelation, verse 4, it indicates that they will help Jesus to reign over the earth for a thousand years. And we come to verse 12, 13, and 14, and the sixth seal is opened, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together. And every mountain and island were moved out of their places. <laughs> That's a big earthquake. That's a monster earthquake. Now, man has been recording earthquakes for thousands of years. But modern earthquake records began around 1600, something like that. And the Lord Jesus opens this sixth seal. And I'm sure we're getting now near to the end of the tribulation. And the results on earth are so scary that they're heart stopping. Now I did a little research and I read that on May 22nd, 1960, the world's strongest recorded earthquake um, was in Chile. And it registered 9.5 out of 10 on the Richter scale. We've never seen a 10 out of 10. Only Hollywood movies have seen that. But the world has not yet seen a 10 out of 10. Huh. They're going to get an 11 out of 10. Maybe a 12 out of 10. But this thing that devastated Chile was 9.5 on the Richter scale. It created a tsunami 30 feet high. 30 feet high. Wall of water. It eliminated entire villages in Chile. And uh, even hundreds of miles away in Hawaii. It was killing people. Now the world's second greatest earthquake happened December 26, 2004 in the Indian Ocean and it caused a tsunami and over a couple hundred thousand people were killed. Now, we talk about our troublous days now. We talk about difficult times now. You get into that tribulation and as you get near to the end of it, this world is, it's, won't be recognizable. Sometime after uh, America dropped the bomb on Hiroshima and it just obliterated the city. It was like nothing anyone had ever experienced ever in Earth's history. And in just a matter of seconds, an entire city was leveled. And, and people were gone in, in the heat and the light were so strong that it would, it burned the shadow of people into concrete. It, it was, it was unbelievable. Later people went back. They went back to the city and they were totally lost a city that they'd called home, a city that they'd grown up in. Some of the survivors that were out of town that, that day or managed somehow to flee they came back. They did not recognize the city. They did not know where they were. And that's the conditions you're going to have on earth come near the end of the tribulation. We have this incredible earthquake that makes all other earthquakes seem mild. This thing is not local. This thing is worldwide. And there's going to be worldwide devastation and death and carnage. All of the beautiful places of the world are all decimated. Sewage, dead bodies, many of which are floating in the water. Tall buildings destroyed, bridges collapsed, power plants up in smoke. Every available hospital and clinic, if there are any still standing, 
jammed to overloading capacity with injured people. All travel ceases. Fire, police, military. What's left of them working round the clock to restore order to worldwide chaos. Unbelievable. Verse 13, and the stars of heaven fell unto earth. Possible reference to meteorites hitting the earth. Meteor, meteorites come into the earth's atmosphere, but they're usually burned up. We call them shooting stars. Some of them actually do hit the earth though, but they're pea size meteorites. They land on the earth at a rate, a scientists estimate at a rate of 10 per hour. Every hour in 24 hours, there's 240 pea sized meteorites hitting somewhere around the world. Walnut sized meteorites land at a rate of one per hour. Grapefruit sized meteorites land at a rate of one every 10 hours. Basketball sized meteorites land at a rate of one per month. The largest single meteorite on record is 1400 pounds. And these meteorites will shower the earth causing more death and destruction. Unbelievable. I'd like you to write down a couple more verses and I want you to check these out at home. Luke chapter 21, verse 25 to 26. That's Luke 21, verses 25 and 26. And Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 31. Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 31. Now, please look back at chapter 6. Look at verse 15. Everyone runs for cover. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains. So everyone runs for cover. The businessmen, the housewives, the kings and the slaves and servants, they all run for cover. Verse 16, and said to the mountains and to rocks and the rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For great, the great day of the wrath of his wrath is come and who shall be able to stand? And so these unsaved, Men, women, young people, kings, queens, ordinary people, slaves, bondmen, all the unsaved, they seem to know at this point that God is very angry with them. But what they do not do is repent. They run for cover. They do not repent. In Romans chapter 1 verse 20 it says for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made if even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. Deep in the heart of every man be he an atheist or an evolutionist whatever he wants to call himself he knows deep in his soul he knows God is there. Every human being is made in the likeness and image of God. And every human being knows deep, deep down in his heart the existence of God. Every unsaved human being will one day stand before God for eternal judgment. And here, when God unleashes this devastation, they run, they hide, but they do not call upon God. They do not call upon God. You know, the Bible tells us in Numbers chapter 32, be sure your sin will find you out. Sin is always deadly business. It's nasty business. It's not something that we want to be involved with. You cannot sin and get away with it. You cannot do things you shouldn't do and not get chastened or judged for it. It will not happen. You will reap what you sow. And I'm the same way. And I know this, that no matter who you are, whether you're a pastor of a church or a regular Christian who attends, if you're not keeping short accounts with sin, 
you will have to face God about it. And more than likely, God will bring about something on earth. A number of years ago, a pastor whom I knew of, I actually met him once, but I knew of him for many, many years. And he was uh, sort of a secret hero of mine. And he got arrested. And um, apparently he had done some pretty despicable things. And he tried to hide it and run from it. But it finally caught up with him. And uh, it just seemed that the whole world It it just kind of felt almost like he was standing naked before the whole world. They could see his sin. But you see, even if the world doesn't see the sin, God does. And this last scene in the Bible here of men running for cover is because of their sin. And we might, you know, smugly say, well, good. I hope they die in some of those caves because they probably were the murderers of some of those martyrs. And you're probably right. But the application for us is still kind of the same. You you can't run from God. You can't run from sin. And those of us that are born again, we're saved. Are we really living the way we should? That's where it comes down to. So keep that in mind. Think about that. If Jesus were to come back tonight, Are you ready? Or would you say, not yet, Lord. (laughs) I got a few things I got to clean up. See, that's why we always want to keep short accounts with sin. And we want to keep our eyes open looking for Jesus. Would you pray with me?